1: I'm Amanda Littman, and this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount. Our guest this week is Lupe Lupin, a writer you might better know as NYC Southpot on Twitter. More recently, I've been reading his Paw Prince newsletter on Substack, which you should definitely check out. He's also working on a book to come out about a year and a half from now, so keep an eye from him. I wanted to have Lupe on the show because I think he's a really important part of the conversation on the intersections of Twitter to news and back to Twitter, and also just a really smart guy who's able to very eloquently explain what's going on in Congress and on some of the legal issues that, as a not-lawyer, I really, really appreciated. But before we get to my conversation with Lupe, I wanted to spend some time talking about Striketober. Uh, If you are not familiar with Striketober, it's because the news hasn't been paying too much attention to this, or at least not in a concerted way. But there are hundreds of thousands of people currently striking or preparing to strike from their jobs. And I want to give you a little bit of a sense of the sort of scope of this. 10,000 John Deere workers, 2,000 hospital workers in Buffalo, 1,400 in Kellogg's factories across four states, 450 steel workers in West Virginia, a one day walk off of 2,000 telecoms workers in California, 1,000 coal miners in Alabama, 700 nurses in Massachusetts, 400 whiskey makers in Kentucky, 200 bus drivers in Reno, um, and 60,000 Hollywood workers just barely averted a strike. Although we'll see if they're able to ratify their deal when the union votes on the new contract. And 31,000 Kaiser employees authorized walkouts as well. So while this isn't as big of a strike wave as we had in the 1940s when one in 10 U.S. workers went on strike over the course of the year, it's also not the basically zero strikes we had in the private sector in the 2010s. I think it's an offshoot of the broader movement we're seeing where people have really changed the relationship to work. You know, unions have more leverage. Wages are not keeping up with inflation. People saw that their employers just didn't give a shit about them. They didn't care about their health. They didn't care about their lives. They don't care about their well-being. I think this is particularly interesting when you think about the impact this can have on electoral politics. You know, unions and unionizations and especially strikes can create a real sense of class camaraderie. And we know that identification with class is, in fact, in some ways even bigger than their sort of political identification with race or gender identity. It also cultivates some really strong political relationships. You know, unions were very powerful as mobilizers in part because the mechanisms you need to create to go on strike translate pretty well into political activism. And I think a lot about the teacher strikes at the last couple of years, which I think were underrated as their impact on wins, especially in states like Arizona and the governorship in Kentucky. You know, the teacher strikes are a little bit different. Those are public sector strikes in which they're striking against the government. But a lot of political science research has shown that firsthand strike exposure increased parents' support for the teachers in the labor movement, as well as parents' interests in labor action writ large. Studies in Kentucky showed that teachers who were striking were then heavily engaged, about four in 10 teachers, with the governor's election, which ultimately the Republican lost. Keep in mind there's a Democratic governor of Kentucky. And Republican actions in states like Arizona, West Virginia, Oklahoma, and Colorado were what led to teacher strikes, which then in some of those places, Arizona and Colorado in particular, helped Democrats win. So who knows if these strikes will have the same kind of impact in 2022. There's no way to say at this moment. But I think it's worth keeping an eye on and is something that I find really interesting as a way of practicing political activation. For many folks, their activation in labor or their activation at their job is their primary way of political involvement. So we'll see what happens, but I'm keeping an eye on it. If you want to learn more about union organizing, we had a great conversation early on with Jennifer Bates and Joshua Brewer, who were organizing the Amazon Union in Bessemer, Alabama. It's a really interesting talk about how unions work and how one organizes them and the way in which it's practiced for political engagement. So go back and take a listen. I'll leave it there for now. Let's hear my conversation with Lupe Lupin. Lupe Lupin, welcome to Battleground.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: You are something of an enigma to most people. You sort of fly under the radar. I remember meeting you at a party a couple of years ago at a mutual friend's home. Um, We got introduced and you were like, oh, I know your work. I was like, oh, how are you? I'm NYC Southpaw on Twitter, which makes you a little bit of an, honestly, a celebrity in my home. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself.
0: What's its tell? So
1: weird, isn't it? It is so
0: weird. <laughs> um, I grew up in California. I, my name is a family name. It's been part of our family for eight generations now. So I'm by Bush Lupin. My dad's Lipay Ridgeway Lupin. My grandfather was big Hodgkin Lupin. I can go back a couple more, but I'll bore you. <laughs> um, so grew up in Los Angeles, went to school in California and law school in Virginia, and then moved up here to be a corporate lawyer doing financial transactions. And the nature of that practice was kind of up and down and in the slow times. I started a Twitter account anonymously so that I wouldn't get in trouble with my law firm and my clients and <laughs> kept it going for nine or 10 years and then decided that I wanted to try to be a writer. Um, and so left the law firm, revealed myself and started writing for freelance outlets, Yahoo News and um, BuzzFeed and other places here and there. And I'm working now on a book on progressive politics with my good friend Hunter Walker.
1: One of the things I think is really interesting about your role as a writer is it really embodies sort of like the Twitterization of the news cycle. Do you have thoughts on your role in this?
0: I don't know that I am I can speak terribly intelligently about my role, except that I think a lot of what I like about Twitter is that it has this immediacy to it that doesn't require the whole backstory necessarily to keep telling a story, develop a community of readers. And speak to them about the immediate issue. What you see is the most salient point, uh-huh. the biggest contradiction, the funniest part. And keeping that conversation going, I think, is in many ways a lot more organic and natural way to engage with the news than having to do like you know Hillary Clinton, who was the wife of former President Bill Clinton, yeah, once the senator <laughs> from New York. People sometimes need that background, but they don't always. And I think there's a a place for the kind of immediacy and casualness of the way we communicate on social media rather than long written pieces.
1: Now, that being said, also, you're working on a book with our mutual good friend, Hunter Walker. You have a sub stack, like most people, <laughs> which is called Paw Prince, Um, Has nothing to do with dogs, although if you ever need a photo of a dog, I have one to offer.
0: I um, do need photos <laughs> of dogs. I need, I need to get I'll, back to the dogs.
1: I'll send you some pics of Sadie later. Thank you. Your latest sub stack deals with what looks like to be a backdoor agreement between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin. This is fascinating because it kind of came out of nowhere. Can you give the backstory here and explain what made it kind of a big deal or not a big deal, such as it is?
0: So the Biden administration has been trying to pass its domestic agenda uh-huh. pretty much all year. They did the American Rescue Plan, the coronavirus relief bill through reconciliation. They worked on a voting rights bill that got blocked in the Senate, and then they started working on infrastructure. And the Democrats, I think the White House and Democratic leadership settled on this two-track strategy where they were going to do a bipartisan infrastructure bill where the moderate, so-called moderate, centrist, blue dog, whatever term we prefer. Senators would work with their Republican colleagues and come up with something that had kind of broad support. And then all the other elements of the agenda that President Biden ran on would kind of go in this reconciliation bill, which was going to pass with all (laughs) the Democrats' votes. And there's been a lot of sort of sturm and drang about that two-track strategy. In some ways, it was politically fraught to acknowledge that the two bills had this linkage where the reconciliation bill was kind of this backup of the rest of the agenda that everybody knew Republicans weren't going to support. And the, the size of the bill had initially been discussed. And if you talk to Bernie Sanders, at least it was something like six trillion dollars. Yeah, they knocked that down fairly early on in the process in the summer to three and a half trillion. Started talking about three and a half trillion as the top line price tag, and that that was going to incorporate all these different programs, pre K, universal pre kindergarten for everyone, all the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I try to I try to work in a little bit of the policy when I talk <laughs> about it uh, because I feel like the top line number is what gets discussed yeah. so much. But the top line number became the animating issue and it became the sort of blue dog point of resistance that we just can't spend trillions of dollars right now. We don't agree to spend three and a half trillion dollars, but at least in public, the point was never refined beyond that sort of general, I'm not comfortable with the size of this thing. Yeah, Which is why I'm so surprised. A couple of weeks ago when Politico unearthed this document, which had been signed in late July, um, at least according to the date that's on it, it's got... Joe Manchin's signature on it, it's got Chuck Schumer's signature on it, and it specifies a bill for one and a half trillion dollars with all these other conditions, which are pretty strange. And it it landed kind of like a bombshell because people had been saying, these two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, haven't been negotiating with us. They haven't been telling us what their position is and giving us anything to react to. And then it turns out there was this secret document sitting in the files at Joe Manchin's office, of Chuck Schumer's office, that hadn't at least if from what we know, hadn't been shared more broadly and that had all this stuff that you can start a discussion about.
1: And like, just to be clear, usually, I'm not an expert here, but usually major policy negotiations that encompass the entire, at least Democratic caucus in the United States Senate, do not start with a secret term sheet.
0: No. From what I can tell, I have done my best to report on this, talk to staffers in the, the Senate side and the House side. People don't see something like this. No. People, a lot of members who are not in leadership want promises from leadership about what's going to happen and acknowledgements of their position and tend to be very cagey about that. You really are not going to encounter, from what I understand, too many documents with Chuck Schumer's signature on them or Nancy Pelosi's signature on them saying, Uh you know, hey, here's. AOC's position on Medicaid, Medicaid, it just isn't a normal way of doing business. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the interest in reporting on this has been, well, how did this come about? Was there some dramatic showdown between Shimmer and Manchin or, <laughs> or something else? And this was a, you know, the negotiated concession or resolution of it? Or was there, I don't know, do they meet in like a bar somewhere? Scrawl this out on a notepad and then our staff take houseboat. <laughs> yeah, right. Is it, is it a, a product of all this Thailand or no? <laughs> the name of his houseboat. And so I have not been able to untangle that mystery. Um, I know a lot of reporters are trying, but I think it's also like, important to look at the document and what it contains because it's not just one and a half trillion. It's also got these weird provisions in it. Like, none of the money from this domestic spending bill, according to Mitch and Sturmchi, is supposed to be spent until all the money from the coronavirus relief bills has been spent. That includes stuff that's hard to spend in these coronavirus relief bills. There's this rental assistance program. They've had a really hard time getting the states to implement it and get it out to people, which is its own issue and its own problem that we're worried about this admission crisis potentially coming because people aren't getting this rent relief that Congress has appropriated. But like, why would you ever say that you can't start the pre-K program? Until you've spent the rental assistance money or you can't do the climate change measures that are in the reconciliation bill until you've spent the rental assistance money or I don't know, some hospital assistance fund that's in there that hasn't been dispersed yet. It doesn't really make sense except as a kind of poison pill for the negotiation. So what I've been trying to do on paw prints is try to get people to focus on what's actually in there because there's other stuff too. One of his big things, which is isn't a surprise is means testing, but he specifies uh. in a lot of ways that these programs that were supposed to be universal are instead of going to be means tested. And you think about what that means for pre k for instance, you know, it means that every parent, someone who's a parent of a toddler is probably, <laughs> probably struggling to get their job and their kid and their childcare and everything. It has just to like, to get this government has to sit down and fill out a 25 page form about their finances and their assets and what their ability to pay is going to be. And it, it's a, big burden for people to just do the paperwork. And it also means that above a certain level, people won't have access to this program. So it's essentially the federal government saying wealthy enough four-year-olds are excluded from our pre-K system. We don't want those two groups of kids in the same place. And that strikes me as a a really bad outcome if that's where we're headed.
1: He also has some stuff in there that it seems like Congress can't actually do
0: yes so there's one line that says the the Federal Reserve will end quantitative easing quantitative easing is this program where the Fed is essentially buying up long-term assets of financial institutions so so that's all central banking really technical internal stuff and it's like what does Joe Mitchin mean when he says the fed's going to end quantitative easing does he mean that Congress is going to make it illegal for the federal yeah, central bank that- to do that is he going to get like Jay Powell on the phone and get his commitment (laughs) to stop for a while, or, you know, it's just not clear. And so something like that being in the term sheet, I mean, I think it kind of speaks to a lack of seriousness. Like they're just kind of coming up with stuff and throwing it in there, but it could also be that he means it and it could be a serious policy issue if we're going to use this reconciliation bill to try to constrain monetary policy in the U.S.
1: I have come to the position of. Joe Manchin is mostly full of shit and doesn't really know what he's talking about, which is probably not a helpful assessment of the United States Senator who
0: is essentially acting. But it's hard to avoid. (laughs) Yeah, it's not You get the sense that it's like, it's mostly about vibes. Yeah, I think he's governing on vibes. Largely because they're so circumspect about their public statements. I mean, you know, you ask why you couldn't have a $3.5 trillion bill, and the closest he's come to specifying in public is to say something like, well, we shouldn't have an entitlement society. And number one, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything. Makes sense. Like we're not gonna have social security anymore. Right? Yeah. Medicare would he vote to abolish those if it came up? I don't think so. It's just contrary to what being a Democrat has meant for so long, right? The the FDR model is that the state does provide guard rules for people who are vulnerable in society and people who need help. We don't think growing older should mean you grow poor, but we don't think that growing older should mean you lose access to medical care because you have been working anymore. Um, so we have Social Security and Medicare. And so you do get the sense that it's sort of like, it feels politically right for him in a deep red state to be against spending. And so he is sort of against spending to begin with, and then all the rest gets filled in later. love maybe that's uncharitable, I don't know.
1: No, I think it's right, and I don't want to go too far off on Jim mansion because I could do this basically on any topic. But it really also does a disservice to West Virginians who, more so than nearly any other state, really rely on government programs like Medicare, like Social Security, you know. exactly. anyway. <laughs> um, Battleground needs to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more of my conversation with Lupe Lupin. Welcome back to Babagrand. We're talking to Twitter's NYC Southpaw, also known as writer Lupe Lupin. Earlier this week, the Supreme Court commission that Joe Biden created, or the Biden administration created, came out with an initial draft of their recommendations. It does seem like they don't want Democrats to ever win a Supreme Court case again. Is my takeaway correct? (laughs) I
0: guess how cruel cool that like, maybe they do, maybe they want us to win again, but like that they're willing to put themselves on a limb towards making it fairer for Democrats or making a case for justice and legitimacy of the law is infinitesimal, right? They They maybe, if you read closely, are in favor of, Some kind of term limits, maybe. And Um, this isn't
1: their final report. It's just a draft. Things could still change. Is that correct?
0: That's right. And it's super Uh, weird. They put a draft watermark on every page diagonally across the text and made it so you can't search in it or copy and paste uh. it. So it's a weird document. But the things that they, when you and I are talking, I talk a lot about the strange habit of DC and in many ways the DC press corps Mm -hmm. to kind of just say... Here's what Republicans are saying. Here's what Democrats are saying. Who can say who's right? That is the essence of this report. It's not obviously a journalistic product. It's the product of this group that was assembled by the White House legal scholars and lawyers. But they are said, you know, when they talk about court expansion, they sort of go through what Democrats say about Merrick Garland getting blocked off Supreme of Court. Neil Gorsuch taking his place, and Anthony Kennedy maybe cutting a deal to appoint his successor, and Brett yeah. Kavanaugh, and this other wild, unseemly rush to put Amy Cuddy Barrett on the court in like four weeks after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And like, the Democrats have problem with that. The Republicans don't, and who's to say that's right? And it strikes me as like a really uncritical and sad effort um, in terms of like sorting out the claims of the court. You need to look at these issues and decide he was a better case. I think Democrats have a better case in these matters. I think there's certainly a lot of Republicans have to say about the old nominations of Robert Bork, but you can actually piece through those claims and decide what is and isn't credible. You know, Robert Bork back in the 1980s didn't get a Supreme Court seat after he was nominated. That's true. And people were rough on him in his confirmation hearings, but They kind of deserved it. I mean, it was the guy in the Nixon Justice Department who did fire the special prosecutor. And he had a lot of views that people were rightly concerned about. But I think the report does a disservice in just quoting Republicans being mad about that and not saying what the difference is. Robert Bork did get, which is that he got a hearing and he got a vote in the committee and the committee referred his nomination to the floor with a recommendation that not be confirmed, but they still sent it to the floor and then he got a floor vote. And Republicans and Democrats together voted 50 votes against him. And that's why he wasn't on the Supreme Court. If Merrick Garland had gotten a hearing and had gotten sure. to like, speak about what kind of a Supreme Court justice he'd be and gotten the committee vote and gotten to the floor, and then they just couldn't get enough votes to put on the court, I don't think Democrats would be so upset about how the recent spate of nominations to the court have gone. I mean... Of course, you want your nominees to be confirmed, and I'm sure there would be grievances, but that the process has been so different, and the report, as I read it, just doesn't really dig into that in a serious way.
1: My sense with the report is that the two parties are operating on different levels of good faith, and that Democrats, generally speaking, at least when interacting with Republicans, if not within our own party, try and operate from a space of we're all good actors trying to make the world a better place. You know, we're trying to get to the good outcome, um, regardless of how it affects our hold on power. And Republicans want to hold power for the sake of holding power. Full stop, whatever it takes. End of story.
0: I think that's right. I think you see this in, in our too, yeah. in some ways. I, I don't think Donald Krantz are perfect in this regard. No, There's no, 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 no. People no, no, are no, often... But- trying to get power, but there is a real strain of like kind of goody two shoes, good government Eh. feeling in the democratic party. Right. I don't mean to denigrate it, but you know, I think the reason that a lot of kind of schwalzy shows about government are popular people like the West Wing is because they're coming to this kind of Hollywood ending where people of good faith come together and forge a compromise. Unfortunately, You need a partner for that Uh to work. You need a Republican Party that also has those values and wants to work with Democrats in some circumstances to forge those compromises. And I think the scope of things that are willing to work with Democrats on is so narrow. And the degree to which they're often just trying to, like, you know, just go along for only so far until they can yank the rug out from underneath people. Uh Uh-huh. Again and again and again, Democrats have that experience. And one thing that I think is frustrating for progressives is that other parts of the party just don't seem to absorb those experiences and adjust their attitude toward Republicans. And it's always this kind of, well, oh, one side says one thing, the other says the other thing. Who's to know he's right. right? We hope one day that bipartisanship will prevail. And I'm like, yeah, we hope that. But we're, like, we are we got to be realists <laughs> at some point after suffering all these bloody setbacks.
1: Yeah, I think one of the most prominent proof points of this right now is with the January 6th Commission, in which Republicans basically yanked all of their members, except for two, because Nancy Pelosi would not allow some of the worst members of the Republican Party to join.
0: And that's Uh, after they tanked the bill, right? Correct. We had this whole idea for an independent commission, and Republicans had a bunch of demands. Uh-huh. They were each going to appoint the same number of members. You know, there was no way for for Democrats to have an upper hand in the process. So we were in this like independent commission that potentially could have been awesome. Could, could have been awesome. Could have been a fiasco, right? If they get <laughs> the Republicans on there that they appointed it turned out to be all a bunch of Trumpists. maybe they would just have kept it from working at all. The Democrats conceded. As far as I know, everything they asked for, uh-huh. um, and we're like, we'll, we'll put it in the bill, let's pass it, and then they wouldn't vote for it. Even with everything that they asked for, there was no compromise to be had there, because again, I think the Republican Party is not on the same ideological plane <laughs> of like we really want to have bipartisan compromise and get to the bottom of things and get the facts out and be transparent just like we want to win. Like we want Donald Trump back in office and want you know nine justices in the Supreme Court. We don't care how we get them. And so that, that difference in that in some ways is part of why I prefer the Democratic party in my uh-huh. politics personally, but it also, I think does hobble us from making progress and it leads to a situation like we have this year, where there's just a whole lot of time on the January 6th commission bill, the infrastructure bills, a lot of time spent making overtures uh, that haven't produced a whole lot of results.
1: I was listening to an interview with Adam Schiff in which he talks about the January Sixth Commission and the ways in which um Republicans, in particular Steve Bannon, Dan Scavino, um, you know, all of our faves from the last four years are refusing to comply with subpoenas. Yep. Um, that hopefully the Justice Department will prosecute them for that. My legal education comes primarily from watching All of the Good Wife a couple of times over the last year. I didn't realize that you could just tell like it, ignore a subpoena. Are there other ways besides sort of Justice Department prosecution that they have to compel these folks to show up and give
0: testimony? In theory, there are. The Congress is a, an independent branch of the government, does have what's called an inherent contempt power. Her. And they have used it in the past with what they would do if they were to use it again, which hasn't happened in decades, is send out an official who's employed by Congress, the Sergeant at Arms, to go and Grab the witness to arrest them and bring them into the house, and get them to either answer questions or they can hold them as a as a witness. This power, that authority, <laughs> has been used since like the 1930s. I think there were some, maybe some banking cases. And number one, is controversial. And number two, they kind of don't have the facilities. I mean, if you have one person, maybe you just like I don't know, use a spare room in the Capitol or rent a hotel room or something. Mm-hmm. With some guards outside, but they don't really have like a capital jail and a big. Um, you know, the, It's the not like sort the of,
1: Eagle Stadium with its no, own internal prison.
0: There's supposedly like something that looks like a cylinder on the crypt, but it's actually where George Washington's coffin was supposed to be. But no, there's no capital jail. And so this is a, kind of a bigger issue when you have a, an opposing administration power or the DOJ, like the Trump DOJ, isn't going to do anything to help Democrats' yeah. investigations. So a lot of folks had advocated for them to try to build up this capacity to say, you know, Congress has its own power to compel witnesses when it's necessary, especially in the case of impeachment. You've got an administration that's under threat that's not providing any documents, not making witnesses available. Um, and you do want to give your subpoenas force. I mean, an ordinary person like you and me cannot just ignore a subpoena. Ignoring it is fraud because yeah. they can do what the January 6th commission did. They can go to the Department of Justice. If you get a subpoena in civil litigation, they go to the judge and the judge issues the court order and arrest, a pinch warrant for your arrest. Um, There's lots of consequences for normal people to not abiding by a subpoena. But in the interplay between the branches, between the executive branch and Congress, it gets a lot more loose and goosey. And
1: it does really matter that we hold the January 6th, both the organizers, the participants, the enablers, accountable. Yeah. It really matters.
0: It really does. I think it was incredibly close to losing our whole system of government. I I think about scenarios where they've taken the House and the Senate and then, you know, rather than just hiding and watching TV, Trump shows up there, you know, he walks in and starts convening a different kind of meeting. And it really scares me what would happen if some kind of order came out of there to arrest Mike Pence or to do... Some kind of crazy thing. I think that is, you know, we had a, an attack that sacked our legislative branch and the president did nothing, which in many ways is to his discredit, right, that he didn't act to stop the attack, did not send more forces there immediately to call people off to say, you don't represent me, to tell the American people that these rioters didn't represent his movement. Instead, he put out some vague messages after a lot of pressure. But I think that, you know, the other way he could have acted is in a scary way, mm-hmm. where he acts as an authoritarian and says, the Congress was dissolved, and here's what we're going to do now. Constitution doesn't apply anymore. And people will tell you that it really wasn't there, it wasn't something to worry about because of Donald Trump's nature. I don't think we know enough about his nature, honestly, mm-hmm. even after four years, to say that he wouldn't do something like that. And so that's why I take it as an incredibly serious thing, and it is frustrating to see how trivial it's treated in the mainstream press and commentary.
1: I think one of the most riveting half hours of the last six months was when AOC went on Instagram Live and talked about her experience on January 6th of hiding behind the door as police officers and protesters came and stormed it, hammering it, trying to find her. And the ways in which from there... One, to have these members of Congress know that that is their work environment and that could happen at any given point in time is so scary. But to know that other members of Congress, that members of the administration were complicit in that creates a very high stakes work environment at any given point. And I think thirdly, you know, we talk about what we're experiencing now, which is sort of like the slowest moving coup ever of it's happening state by state with QAnon folks running for secretary of state and the Republican party being taken over by Steve Bannon acolytes and uh local election authorities sort of being forced out of their jobs by security threats all of that is the slow moving version and January 6th was the fast moving violent version like those are the same they're just two different iterations
0: right there's this Thing about the way we talk about events in U.S. affairs, we're like we sort of make a cutoff date, and then uh-huh. the events of January sixth, and then afterwards is the aftermath. And I think, as you said, it's more of a slow-moving process where we are still trying to resolve that in some ways. Uh-huh. We don't know exactly what members of Congress may have done, but as we proceeded from January sixth to present, I think it's very clear the Republican Party is coalescing around those. Rioters. You see Donald Trump doing it. You see Republicans who don't want to cross him doing it. Where you know they're embracing initially Babbitt as a martyr, the woman who died in the speaker's mm-hmm. lobby when, when she was shot to get through the glass doors and, and to where members of Congress were. There was a rally in Virginia yeah. in support of Glenn Youngkin's campaign where they were pledging allegiance to a flag that had supposedly been at the riot. You see this kind of sacralization of parts of January 6th, elevating it to praiseworthy status rather than, you know, you might hope given what just said about AOC's experience that her colleagues would like band around her and say, whatever our differences, you know, nothing like this can happen again. People need to understand there's a right way to wrong way to engage in politics. And, and, you know, you can shout at the top of your lungs, but you can't break the glass and run in and terrify and intimidate and abuse people. And so I think the aftermath is providing us with the clarity that maybe the events immediately before and during don't. Which is that there's this real divide where members of Congress have to go to work with people who are, in various ways, expressing support for this insurrection, and they're doing it in full knowledge of what it was. You know, you hear all of these police officers talking about how they lost fingers, eyes, crushed, and fear for their lives. And you're still finding ways to make that praiseworthy. Yeah. I think that draws a very stark divide in our politics.
1: Let's take a quick break. But Battleground will be right back with more from Lupe Lupin. And we're back. One of the topics of your book that you are working on is the Democratic Party and the Democratic primary and the presidential primary, which, as I personally tried to squashed down 2019, 2020. Let's just put that behind us. Like most Americans, I never want to relive that primary experience again. In the memory um,
0: hole. Just going to memory all yeah.
1: that so hard. But I do think it's worth talking a little bit about the Iowa caucuses because we are nearing a window in which we have a chance to change them, but we will quickly pass that window. For those who are not familiar what the Iowa caucuses are entirely and why they are bad, can you give a refresher?
0: So we have a presidential primary process that includes caucuses and primaries in various states. The point of it being to assemble the thousands of people who come to the Democratic National Convention to nominate the Democratic nominee for president. And so Iowa has traditionally gone first of these contests. It holds a caucus system where it's not just like going in and voting. You have to go in and sort of arrange yourselves according to the candidate you like. And then there's a liability test. Uh, it gets very complicated and the candidates who weren't viable, their groups kind of disband and have to go and join other candidates. And then there's a final count and that determines who's set to the next step of the process. And there's a multi-step process. So it starts at these precinct levels. And then it goes to the county level, to then a state convention, and then that state convention ultimately elects the, the delegates to the DNC and the process takes a long time and it's very complicated and it's prone to disaster. <laughs> In 2020, there was no results on the night of the caucus. And that was a big deal for a lot of campaigns because the way you campaign for president, it's tough. You need a lot of money and a lot of organization. You also need a lot of media oxygen. And the fact that it didn't happen in 2020, I think, was traumatic for a lot of the campaigns. I talked to people on Bernie Sanders' campaigns and we had a plan if we lost. We had a plan if we won. We just didn't have a plan if neither thing happened, if we just Uh had no result. Then we have no way to say, hey, come on save Bernie, or hey, Bernie's got, you know, he's got the momentum, help us keep it going. We just have this sort of blah thing, and we're fighting with Pete Buttigieg over whether it's okay to declare victory or not. So, the Iowa caucus is a big thing. It's important, and the, the campaigns care a lot about it. And it's also just so complex and relies on the state Democratic party, so in a primary system... The actual state runs the election, like you have your primary, turning your ballot to the state and the state council and they they announce the results. But in the the caucus system, it's all about the organizing of volunteers by the, the state party and that process can go wrong. In 2020, the app didn't work essentially and they couldn't collect their results in real time and couldn't announce any results because they didn't know what had happened on these thousands of little caucus sites. And so the result was a debacle. The thing that I found is that there's a lot of feeling in the Democratic Party that I always shouldn't go first, right? There's a lot of folks uh-huh. who don't like the fact that in this predominantly white state, I think 91% of the voters in the entry poll were white. And that doesn't represent what America is today or what the Democratic Party is today.
1: I think the fact that Nevada got rid of their caucuses, they used to have them prior to 2020 and they got rid of them in no small part because. The process that you so eloquently laid out uh, makes it really hard for people who don't work nine to five, so have unusual work schedules or have kids or maybe have disability issues or can't afford to spend three hours moving around a high school gymnasium to participate. And your vote's not secret. None of it is in line with how we typically imagine elections to occur. And the fact that Iowa, in particular, the Iowa Democratic Party, holds it so preciously as the first, as the, the most secret, as the place you have to go to be president, even though Joe Biden did not win the Iowa caucuses and now he's president, is I think indicative of sort of a Democratic Party internal debate about who gets a say and whose voice matters. Exactly. I'm wondering if as throughout your reporting and throughout your conversations with Democratic Party operatives, you have sort of a conclusion and um, with like the guiding ethos of the Democratic Party sort of coming out of the 2020 primary and going into who knows what a 2024 presidential election could look like might be.
0: I don't have a conclusion for you. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. but uh, we're still reporting, still trying to find <laughs> out what's going on. I think I, I do have an exhortation for you, which is that as bad as Iowa is at doing its caucus, Iowa is so good at keeping its caucus. Like they mm-hmm. are incredibly organized, as is New Hampshire, about keeping their first in the nation status and they have state laws that back them up. They have all these relationships with media outlets and reporters and activists and donors and there's a ton of institutional inertia about reforming the system. And like, it just simply is not going to get done in the back rooms with party officials and people on the rules and bylaws committee expressing the kind of concerns we have about demographics and their level of organization. If this is ever going to change, there needs to be a public campaign, like right now in this weird time when no one's thinking about presidential politics to change it. Because right now we don't have campaigns in the field right now. Some candidates have been to Iowa, probably some prospective candidates, but it's not like they've spent tons of money and tons of time and, and created a whole structure there just now. Potentially things could change kind of in this window. It's still an incredibly huge battle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you need someone like the president or an alliance of prospective candidates to come out and say, this ought to change and we will respect our rule change. And if Iowa holds its caucus in violation of the DNC's attempt to reform it, we're not going to go there. If you got that. Potentially things could change, but short of that, you know, from my reporting, from talking to people who were well-versed in the Iowa process and how Iowa really works, like they really have real firm grasp on their first in the nation status, as does New Hampshire. And it's really just not going to change without a big public campaign. And unfortunately, I don't see a big public campaign coalescing.
1: Well, at the very least, you and I both will keep shouting into the void to abolish the Iowa caucus and expand the Supreme Court. <laughs> 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 you know, do it all. Try and operate in a better environment. Lupe, thank you for joining Battleground. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me. I hope we can do it again sometime.
1: Thanks so much to Lupe Lupin for joining me on Battleground this week. Make sure you subscribe to his Substack. Paul Prince. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and a golden review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our associate producer. Tara Ottavino is our producer and story editor. And Christian Castro-Rosel is our executive producer.